for this reason, as soon as you get about a year or two out into practice, you're going to start getting approached by people who are offering you, quote unquote, private equity or like the sort of stock before the IPO into different businesses. Um, and this is very high risk. Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, J.P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. Great. Today on the Nurse Surgery Podcast, we have the second of our three-part series on financial planning. We're very lucky to be joined by Brandon Gaynor. Brandon is a private practice neurosurgeon, and he's going to tell us all about considerations early on in your career. Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Brandon, why don't you first introduce yourself to our audience uh, and tell them a little about who you are and where you come from? Uh, my name is Brandon Gaynor. I'm a neurosurgeon in private practice. I've been finished my training in 2016 at the University of Miami Jackson Memorial Hospital. Um, uh, I uh, I grew up in California and um, did my medical school at the University of Missouri before uh, moving on to Miami. Um, I recently relocated to New Jersey from Chicago and. Um, I would have to say that like the average neurosurgeon, uh, I was uh, fairly financially illiterate uh, throughout all of my training uh, because doctors are taught a lot, uh, but taught very little about um, medicine and personal finance. Yeah. Now, just to be clear for our audience, you are not like a hedge fund baby or like a trust fund baby and you weren't born independently wealthy or anything like that, right? Uh, no, not at all. And I would say that you know, for people who uh, are starting out with a significant uh, financial cushion from, you know, whether it be a previous career or uh, a family money or a spouse, uh, their considerations are going to be different. You know, my sort of lessons and advice are sort of based on someone who's uh, quote unquote self-made. So why don't you walk us through like your first couple of years, you know, you finished residency, and you get out there, you get a job, what's going on in your head? You know, I think um, initially um, the first things for me that were going on were all of a sudden things that I knew I needed but couldn't afford, I thought, as a resident, now I needed. Um, and so that would say, I would say that like insurance uh, falls into that category. Um, I think that I, I like to think about you have – the three things that I, I had to sort of accomplish where you have to, you have to get your insurance um, house in order. Uh, you need to get your debt management in order. And you also very importantly have to get your sort of retirement savings nest egg um, squared away early on. So Brandon, you're, you're talking about um, realizing these things and getting started with them as you were exiting residency uh, I'm in my first year, and much like you, I, I could honestly describe myself as financially illiterate um, and coming from a, a self-made background as well. 
are are there any things um, that you could think of, you know, as you were exiting residency, starting your career, you wish you had been doing earlier, or that you think, you know, someone during residency is even capable of doing on a resident salary? You know, I think uh, absolutely. I I came out of training at a time where, uh, although at the time I thought I didn't have any money to save for retirement. I'm kicking myself now because when I came out of school in 2009, it was the end of a financial crisis or we're in the midst of a, a, a crash in the market. Um, every dollar that I had could have spent in tax deferred retirement savings as a resident uh, would add up to a lot of money now. And when you think about um, as a resident, your tax liability is fairly low and it's more in line with what the typical average American occurs. Uh, whereas as an attending in neurosurgery at the time that we're in now, every dollar you make is taxed at a marginal rate that's, you know, approaching 38 to 50%, depending on which state you live in. Uh, and so um, time is your friend when it comes to retirement savings, if you start early, and it's your enemy if you start late. So it's never, no amount is too little. A lot of this is really behavioral. And uh, even though you're, you're like, in your mind, I was like, I'll just make up for this later. Uh, just the diligence and this discipline to live on less. And you can, because most Americans, uh, most American households are living on as much or less money than the typical resident makes. Um, but one thing that I wish, so aside from wishing that I had, contributed to uh, like a Roth account or a 401k as a resident. Um, the other thing that I wish I had been able to do was to pay more towards my student loans because um, many student um, loans go into either deferment or forbearance during residency, uh, which is good for your monthly budget as a resident, uh, but you pay the price and you incur significant um, uh, loan interest capitation. So now that I've got my uh, my self-interested question out of the way, um, moving back into that that transition from resident to young attending, how did you start to learn these lessons that you were talking about? Um, were there particular experiences or older mentors in the department you joined? So uh, I have a couple stories about this, actually. Um, the first one being, and I'll go chronologically, uh, when I was a mid-level resident, I got a phone call from a sales agent. Now, I didn't know he was a sales agent. But he was essentially um, an insurance salesman who marked himself as a financial advisor uh, who was recommended, uh, he said, by a senior resident of mine. So you may find this a lot, and it's a common tactic, is you get a phone call saying, this is so-and-so, I'm calling from this insurance company. Your chief resident said that you're a smart guy and that you may be in need of my financial advice because you're a doctor. And you, they, they come up with like some excuse to meet you, like, hey, they'll get you a cup of coffee or a bagel. And then they want to start talking to you about uh, your like life insurance needs and selling you... Um, like tax-advantaged um, disability insurance, life insurance, annuities, uh, kind of the whole nine yards. And as a surgical resident, 
you're thinking, well, disability insurance, definitely going to need that. Um, but oftentimes these salespeople are bundling a lot of stuff with you. So as a mid-level resident, I, I ran into these characters a couple of times. And um, at the time, I was just simply like too broke to entertain what they were offering. But had I had more money, I might have sort of kind of fallen for uh, their tactics. So what I would recommend to uh, anyone who in training or about to come out of training is that you definitely need disability insurance, uh, but you should shop for it online. Um, there's a lot of websites that are uh, have good references for this. I think the whitecoatinvestor.com is a great website to learn about all of these issues. And he even has referral links to like reputable uh, insurance brokers who will be able to get you the cheapest policy amongst the sort of top five providers of own occupation disability insurance. Um, if you don't shop around, you're going to get the policy that pays the highest commission for the salesperson. That's the first thing. Yeah. The, sec the second thing is you don't need any whole life insurance or tax advantaged uh, life insurance. Um, those are vehicles that are meant to provide a very high level of commission uh, for the salesperson. But for the needs of a resident coming out of training, you don't need that. It is true that there are some advantages in terms of sheltering you from estate taxes. But at the time that we're recording this, the exemption for estate taxes on the federal level is $23 million. So if you have that problem, um, then you can address that with your attorney at a later date. Uh, but as a resident, it's really an expense that you don't need to incur. But the disability insurance, you should, because you do get a, a discount, usually up to 10% on the premiums if you buy the policy before you exit training. So, Brandon, that's great. So you covered, let's just recap, on three areas. You covered insurance. You said you prefer, at least when you're young, go for the term life, not the whole. And by the way, congratulations on your baby, because that's what you're thinking about now, right? Well, uh, you, you, covered, yeah. <laughs> you covered disability insurance. Uh, you talked a little bit about loan repayment, and you also talked a little bit about uh, setting up a retirement. So going back, walking through it, you have a whole, whole like cohort of residents you graduated with, right? 100, 200 people out there. What are the kind of mistakes you see people making on a regular basis that you're like, whoa, you cringe, like, you know, dude, don't do that, right? Like, I'm sure you've heard lots of stories about this. So can you share with the young people listening, like, what would you say are the big potholes? Um, so I'll tell you uh, from personal experience, a mistake that I've made is getting lured into the trap that um, somehow because your income qualifies you something called accredited investor status, uh, which is a designation the Security Exchange Commission dubs on people who make over 200,000 a year for two consecutive years or who have a net worth of at least $1 million in liquid assets that you are now um, uh, eligible for certain high risk investments that really the sort of average um, citizen has no business um, dabbling in. The reason for that, because it's so speculative, it would just wipe out the life savings for an ordinary person. But um for this reason, as soon as you get about a year or two out into practice, you're going to start getting approached by people who are offering you, quote unquote, private equity or like the sort of stock before the IPO into different businesses. 
Um, and this is very high risk. And although anecdotally can um, be very lucrative, um, it's so high risk that it's really something that you shouldn't do until you have established that you've maxed out all of your retirement savings vehicles, you've paid off your student loans, you've probably paid off your home mortgage payment, and you have a sizable taxable um, investment account with conventional index funds, a mixture of stocks and bonds. And only after that do you become now uh, maybe out of things to invest in that you would maybe consider uh, speculating in these types of investments. So avoiding, once again, salespeople who are trying to sell you good investments. So Brandon, you, you mentioned a uh, white coat investor before a uh, great resource. I've, you know, in a, in a limited way, I've, I've looked through their stuff myself. Um, can you recommend anything else for our listeners? Any, any books or any particular resources you've used? Um, you know, it sounds like you've become very knowledgeable about this stuff since your financially illiterate days back at, at my level. How, how did you learn all, all these technical aspects that you seem to be quoting almost offhand? You know, I think a lot of it has to do with um, that book was recommended to me by one of the nurse anesthetists at Jackson Memorial, who was a very savvy um, uh, professional uh, who was very, he followed all of it to a T and um, was very uh, disciplined and diligent about investing as much of his money as possible. Um, <clears throat> so, but even then at the time that he told me to buy it, from the time he told me to buy it, to buy it, from buying it to reading it, and then reading it to putting it into practice, this has been the last seven years and I'm still working on that. So, uh, you know, the, but the, the internet has a lot of resources for this. Um, there's a lot of other websites, there's uh, Facebook groups, like there's a white coat investors group, there's um, a physician on fire and um, passive income MD. And there's a whole cottage industry of physicians who are making their own sort of side gig out of uh, advising other doctors. And, uh, you know, I, I separate myself from them because really it comes down to just a few things. And if you can just get past those mistakes, then you can start to worry about you know, accumulating a real nest egg. And the sort of, um, I think the take home is, is that you probably need to save at least 20% of your gross income just for retirement. And to do that, you have to sort of grow into your income slowly and live more like a resident in the beginning and less like a professional athlete. And that's the sort of the trap of lifestyle creep, I think, is the biggest mistake that I see uh, my colleagues making. Because even though you may be able to afford almost anything you see at the mall, you can't afford everything. So that's a great point, Brandon. I mean, I'm rereading The Millionaire Next Door right now. And it is such a great book by the late Dr. Stanley. And there's an entire chapter just dedicated to doctors because we we are so commonly not everybody but so commonly falling into all these traps and yeah you know when you when you get that huge initial salary it's like i mean you you're making as much as professional athletes like you feel like you could buy anything right and we all know how those athletes often end up so i think this is such an important episode 
uh, to help the young people out there engage on a proper level. And I think that your advice about living, maybe continuing to live like a resident and the whole statistic about how, you know, more than half of us change jobs within the first two years. So don't buy that giant house right at first. Uh, all those things are really, really super important. And I don't know. Did you see this article? Because I know that you have some USC connections about this uh, orthodontist from USC who had one million dollars in student loans. Did you see that article? It's crazy. Yes. Yes. And also there's a, uh, I've, I've run into many re residents recently. Uh, that I met through my involvement with the osteopathic neurosurgery program in Illinois, that a lot of the osteopaths, since the osteopathic schools are essentially all private, um, their student loan burden is like over half a million dollars. It's, it, to me, it, it's uh, mind-blowing, which uh, points that for people who are listening to this podcast, you're probably past the point, it's probably too late to go to public school unless you're in, just in college. Um, but sort of, you got to set yourself up for success by, um, you know, controlling how much debt you incur along the way. Um, but even if you do incur a lot of debt as a neurosurgeon, um, you should be able to get your hands around that amount of debt, but it's going to be painful because you're going to have to literally put every dollar you make back into those loans right away. So my advice would be to try to plan on if you do have student loans, do whatever it takes to pay them off within two years. Um, you'll thank yourself later. Um, I would also say this is another mistake I made is not to buy a house before you renew your contract for the first time, because you don't know if you're going to stay at your first job. And most people don't. Hmm. So, so Brandon, to take a bit of a pivot here. Um, obviously, we can't ignore everything that's going on around the world and, and here in the States with, uh, with this coronavirus crisis as it's spreading now um, through the cities of America. Um, obviously, in addition to affecting the health of Americans and our hospital systems and our practice, it's clearly affecting the markets. Um, so it would be remiss to, to ignore the current state of the market here in America in a discussion of finances. So with, with everything we're discussing, um, do you have any advice for people right now as we're watching the market fluctuations um, or, or any impressions with what's going on currently today? You know, it's a great example of how um, people last year were probably saying, I want to be 100% in stocks because it's I'm missing out on too much of the upside. Um, whereas the conventional wisdom that you should have your asset allocation adjusted based on your age and risk tolerance, even someone who is going to retire in maybe 20 or 30 years would still be 90% stock, but 10% bonds. And even though the stock market has taken, you know, a, about a 30% a drop in the past two weeks, um, not all investments have gone down the same way. And if you, there's even certain bond funds that are going up. So diversification is key and also patience because you only lost money if you sold after they went down, right? So it, another way to look at it, it for people who are coming out now is they just got a four-year rewind on the clock and they can go back and buy things for what they were in 2016, 2017 almost like a discount sale. Uh, 
Right. That's such a great point. You know, I, I, I always think about neurosurgeons. We're all super smart, super accomplished, maybe a little bit arrogant. And I, I look regularly at my investments. I'm like, this is the ultimate example, the Dunning-Kruger effect. I look back over the last 20 years and uh, my indexes uh, like, you know, uh, spider ETFs, uh, something linked to NASDAQ or Dow do great. My individual stock picks all over the place. I mean, it's really quite variable. And then the, the power of dollar co- cost averaging, right? In other words, if you just put the same amount in every month and you buy more stock when it's low and less when it's high, just kind of mutes this effect of like wanting to 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 buy at certain times or sell at certain times. And and I'm really humbled. I thought I was super smart uh, at everything and, and clearly I'm not. And and maybe some neurosurgeons out there are a lot smarter than me on this, but I would I would uh, just have a word of caution unless you're truly a financial expert, right? To really be careful about trying to make it. You know, to take it a step further, even if you are a financial expert, uh, the track record of financial experts on choosing individual stocks is terrible if you compare them to people who simply just follow the index. So even the so-called experts are not able to predict the future, so to speak. Uh, And past performance is never indicative of future performance. If you put in uh, a ton of money right before the stock market crashed in 2008, you would still have doubled your money by now. Okay, Brandon, I'm going to go to a different area and you can you can choose not to answer this, but I know that this is a very important question that will come up, which is one of the biggest financial problems for neurosurgeons is divorce. Okay. And um, can you give the audience some kind of advice like like should they get a prenup? Should they, you know, put off marriage? Should they marry early? There's so many things I've heard over the years. Obviously, I've chosen my path with Amy, but like what do you think would be some good general advice for the young people out there? Uh, you know, I think uh, partner selection is so key and important uh, because the person that you choose to go through life with is going to face uh, unique challenges if they're partnered up with a neurosurgeon. Um, Because like my wife says that being married to a neurosurgeon uh, uh, puts you in a bucket where you have to to take on more of the sort of household family responsibilities uh, because you just, the irregularity of our schedule and intensity of it, you can't be relied on for as much of the sort of day-to-day tasks around the house. Yeah, they're like single mothers. I don't want to a lot of money. She that's what she says. And I, you know, I hesitate that because I'm like, well, the single moms might take exception with that. And everyone's kind of got their sort of cross to bear, but it, it is like that in a way. And even if you try to work around it and, you know, have more help around the house, um, you can't pay people enough to take good care of you. Only love can take care of your family the way you want them to be taken care of. Um, so you want to have a good partner and someone who shares your sort of um, kind of financial goals and behavior. And uh, I would say that, you know, if you, um, if you have someone who is sort of even keeled and, you know, if they have it, it's okay to have a taste for the finer things in life, as long as they understand that you have to sort of pick your splurges, you know, you can't go, big house, big car, big vacation, big clothes, big schools, big toys, big everything. You know, you have to have pick what you're going to splurge on. And it helps if the things that you guys like go together. 
And, you know, divorce is very costly for people. And so you want to uh, make sure that you, uh, that you pick right from the start. And as far as prenups go, I think that um, that one, I think, is, is very tough and it's very controversial uh, because in my experience, the highest quality women don't want to be involved with someone who is, has an insurance policy against them. <laughs> Wise words, Brandon, wise words. Oh, the, um, other, the other thing about that is that most, if you get married uh, before you're established, um, a prenup's not going to help you against the future earnings that you develop. So unless you're established and sort of later into your career, uh, it's not going to help you very much if you're just coming out the gate or if you're a resident. Um, but it is probably something that's maybe more uh, applicable to someone who has maybe already an established family from a previous relationship uh, or who is like later into their career and has already kind of sort of amassed most of their nest egg. Very good. Well, money can't buy you love. Um, Brandon, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, Clearly, I know I have a lot of work to do uh, just based on this conversation, Uh, but thank you for laying out a, a path forward for me and for the rest of our listeners Um, at various early stages in their career. And let me just add, if anybody has any specific questions, we're not financial experts, but we could direct you to the right right people or just give you some opinions. Feel free to email us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. All right. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks, Brandon. All right. Thank you.